Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Unleashed, where we dig into Proposition HH and how the government has grown big time in Colorado. Jared Polis is a manipulative, self-serving politician that outright lies to voters about his record and about his opponents. Now that he is a lame duck, meaning he doesn't have to worry about re-election here, his true self is showing, and it ain't pretty for Colorado, my friends. Before we dig in on Prop HH, let's talk about how we got here and why this is so important to Jared Polis and his legacy in Colorado. My Colorado governor's race last year was marked by controversy, dark money, and questionable tactics that have raised serious ethical concerns. Polis emerged victorious, but the path to his reelection was paved with tens of millions in dark money spending, a complicit media, and allegations of dishonesty. Polis and his affiliated groups spent tens of millions of dollars on negative advertising campaigns that affected every candidate across Colorado, often with very questionable accuracy. They exploited weaknesses in campaign finance laws to flood the airwaves with misleading messages. So as I'm watching what he's doing right now with Prop HH, it's not surprising to me and it's not shocking that all the same players are lining up to have his back as usual. Complicit media outlets played a significant role in Polis's campaign strategy, and they're doing it again with Prop HH. Mainstream news organizations, including Nine News, The Denver Post, The Colorado Sun, and others were outright biased and failed to fact-check Polis's constant lies in the campaign and now in Prop HH. Some even aired false ads about me despite being aware of their inaccuracies, and they're doing the same thing right now in this election. Polis's campaign also benefited from his close ties to big tech, as they put up roadblocks on our campaign, hindering our ability to run Facebook and Instagram ads and be found in Google searches. It was very frustrating. I've heard that's happening now in this election as well with candidates and the various ballot initiatives. Republican voter turnout was very low due to widespread concerns about election fairness in the last election, led by Jared Polis, Jenna Griswold, and the media. They made it a highlight issue, and it was in the back of minds for Colorado voters. Allegations of ballot manipulation, questionable actions by the Secretary of State, and the introduction of illegal immigrant ballots further eroded trust in the electoral system. Just last week, there were reports of little holes in the ballot envelopes in a key county where you could see through to the ballot. Well, let the fun begin in this election, too. Polis's connections to dark money groups draw a lot of scrutiny. Still, as we head into the election to defend Tabor, he's a World Economic Forum young leader, so he has deep ties to George Soros and his crew. These groups played a role in funding ads against us, helping Greg Lopez in the primary against me, influencing the money we had to spend to win the primary election. It's happening again. The money pouring in from big out-of-state Democrat organizations that should have no interest in a ballot initiative here is insane. And Polis' own dark money groups are doing that as well. 
Polis's campaign in the governor's race resorted to spending tens of millions on TV and digital ads spread across various nonprofit groups and big color flyers in every mailbox spreading falsehoods about me, including my abortion positions and positions about contraception. They launched misleading ads even on national platforms like Fox News, which aired them despite our protests. They're doing that again now. Have you seen the ads about Prop HH? They're ridiculous. We are also going to have to figure out how to undo the damage that he and the Democrats have done to Colorado when they're gone in a few years. We're working on it, believe me. His claims of being a freedom-loving libertarian-style leader is just simply BS. And it's likely he'll support someone even more transparently Marxist with his money, his own money, to replace him when he's gone. Maybe Phil Weiser or Jenna Griswold. We have a few years to get ready for that battle, and we will. We are. Polis's leadership has been characterized by a significant expansion of the Colorado state government in terms of both spending and staffing levels. I talked to my race about how the government had grown by 25% in his first term and how I would decrease it by 10% a year each year of my first term. It's getting worse now that he doesn't have to pretend. He mocked me for proposing a path to zero income tax in Colorado over eight years. So did the media. But then he pitched exactly that in his first speech after the election. But oh, the difference a few months post-election and a non-election year makes in politics. It's now his mission in his final years to rid us of Tabor, to increase property taxes tremendously, and to grow the size of our government even more, to move us all to electric cars or no cars at all, and to force us to live in 15-minute cities or apartment blobs, as I call them. The growth in government size, coupled with concerns about a coming structural deficit in the budget, raises big questions about the future of our state. Those of us that have been staunchly supportive of Colorado's Tabor Amendment over the years, I headed up the no on Prop CC uh, ballot initiative a few years ago, and we won, we protected Tober. Well, we've had high hopes that this would curb the government's ever-growing spending appetite. Tabor is why our economy has survived the trauma of COVID and inflation so well. Even though things are still rough in Colorado, they would have been a lot rougher. However, as this law turns 30 years old this year, it's clear that it hasn't put a halt to the expansion of the state government, not by a long shot. So let's consider some striking statistics. Lawmakers are proposing to spend a whopping $36 plus billion in the upcoming fiscal year. That budget will support a workforce of almost 63,000 full-time equivalent employees, which is 820 more than the current staffing levels. To put things into perspective, Colorado's budget in the 2018-19 fiscal year was $28.4 billion with a workforce of 58,000 employees. So Colorado's government, currently under Democratic control, total Democratic control, will have grown by over 4,000 full-time employees and increased spending by nearly a third in just a few years. The state budget has doubled in the last decade. Now, over the last three years, Colorado has seen the addition of more than a dozen new state offices, a new state department, and various other government structures, all accompanied by a wave of new employees to manage them. The bureaucratic state is big and growing. 
The recent surge in government expansion began shortly after Governor Jared Polis took office with the creation of all these new offices and departments. Very libertarian of him, hey? Some of these new entities, like the Office of Saving People Money on Healthcare, have yet to appear as line items in the governor's budget or report any activities to the General Assembly. Data from the Common Sense Institute reveals that Colorado's state government added over 10,000 employees from fiscal year 2013 to fiscal year 2022, peaking in fiscal year 2020 when the workforce surpassed 60,000 employees. Meanwhile, the private sector's workforce remained relatively stable, emphasizing that the only part that's growing is the government growth of employees, not the private sector, which is what we want. The pandemic briefly slowed the growth of the state government workforce, but it didn't halt it entirely. Now, with Colorado's economy poised for a rebound, policymakers are focusing on further expansion of the government state. For instance, the governor's office is set to see its largest ever increase in the number of employees with nearly 76 new positions. The budget for the Department of Healthcare Policy and Finance also includes funds to convert contractors into full-time employees. It's a little trick they have to get people in as part-time or contract and then grow the full-time positions so they can have more control over our lives. In recent years, Colorado policymakers have adopted a strategy of initially funding new offices with gifts, grants, and donations, outside money. However, over time, these programs often require taxpayer funding, almost always, to sustain them, putting pressure on the legislature to allocate more funds. That's their little trick to grow the size of government in Colorado. The rapid increase in government spending and programs has been fueled by the availability of one-time federal dollars from the COVID American Rescue Plan actor ARPA. And while these funds were temporary, bills that they passed during the 22 legislative sessions suggest that some programs funded by ARPA are going to continue after the federal money runs out. So we're going to have to pay them with taxpayer dollars. Now, while many acknowledge the need for these programs, there are concerns about how they will be funded in the long term. The Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, or TABOR, narrowly approved by voters in 1992, limits the growth of government to population increases in inflation. This means that the state government cannot add new programs or employees without a new source of revenue. But shockingly, our so-called libertarian small government governor, haha, has increased the state total operating budget 45% in the last five budget cycles. That's Polis's term to date. And state government full-time employees have grown by 13% since he's been in office. Now, Jared is currently driving Proposition HH. It's his lead initiative on the ballot that's in your mailbox right now to destroy Tabor, our state taxpayer bill of rights, by eliminating the surplus payments back to taxpayers over time. In simple terms, Tabor lets us taxpayers decide if the bureaucrats at the Capitol Endeavor can raise our taxes. The Democrats hate Tabor, and they have since it was implemented because it keeps a check on their out-of-control spending habits. And it's one of Polis's main goals for his second term is to get rid of it. He said during the campaign that he supported ratcheting down our state income tax rate with our Tabor refunds going forward. So instead of getting checks, we would slowly ratchet the income tax rate. And it's actually a plan from John Caldera and the Independence Institute. You've probably heard Ben Murray lately. And it was part of my plan to go to zero income tax over time. 
but he is doing everything he can to destroy those surpluses that would be used to do so with his prop HH effort. So he was lying. It was simply an election year ploy. It was especially entertaining a few months ago hearing John Stossel, who I've always been a fan of, not so much anymore, praise heap on Jared Polis for being a free market Democrat governor. He had Art Laffer, a very um, you know conservative-leaning economist, say the same things. And that was after Dana Perino and many on Fox News fawned over him during our race, calling him libertarian. It was really weird because those of us in Colorado know he's anything but. And after I listened to the interview with John Stossel, I reached out to John Stossel and asked him how he came to this conclusion that Polis was very libertarian-ish. He responded back and told me that the information he got was very reliable. It was from the Bell Policy Center in Colorado. That's what convinced him. I almost spit out my drink. That is a far left think tank set up and funded by the same crew that ran the blueprint here in Colorado, including Jared Polis, to put out very fluffy intellectual sounding BS to support their crazy policies. I sent him back a couple pages of examples of how wrong his assumptions were, and of course, I never heard back. It was really shocking to me. Polis is a con man. His true colors are showing now that he's gotten through his second election. And I'm going to keep calling him out on this stuff. I promised to do that after the election was over, and I have no intentions of slowing down. Um, we need to stop him here. We can't let him run for U.S. Senate or run for president. We've got to stop his political career now. Of course, elections do have consequences, and I'm hoping this last year's race doesn't mean that we finally lose our beloved Tabor or Colorado will pay dearly in the future. So joining me now, Pete Sepp leads the nonprofit, nonpartisan National Taxpayers Union, or NTU. We're going to talk about Prop HH. We're going to talk about zero income tax. And we're going to talk about an aggressive antitrust action from the Biden administration and the Colorado Attorney General, Phil Weiser, including a trial that started just recently against Google. Here's a summary of the key points from this new uh, antitrust fight that's going on. Attorney General Phil Weiser, along with 36 other states in the District of Columbia, filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google. The lawsuit was filed in a California federal court, and it makes five claims against Google, including allegations of monopoly maintenance, creating technical barriers, and buying off competition in the app distribution market. According to Weiser, the lawsuit is driven by concerns about Google's practices in the mobile app market. Let's go ahead and talk to Pete about what this lawsuit means and why our attorney general is spending so much of his time and resources on this effort. Well, welcome, Pete, to the show. We're very excited to have you. You are the president of the National Taxpayers Union. I want you to tell folks about your history, but also what does the NTU do? Like what goes on in the day-to-day -day of the National Taxpayers Union? It sounds really good, and I have a feeling I'm going to like what you work on, but I want to hear it from you. Well, happy to do so. National Taxpayers Union was founded all the way back in 1969 to work for lower, fairer, simpler taxes, less wasteful government spending, taxpayer rights and accountability from public officials at all levels. Our research arm, NTU Foundation, puts out a lot of great stuff comparing how states pursue their tax policies. We also litigate and actually, we're in a suit right now trying to protect Colorado's Tabor from a water district in Lower South Platte that's not following the rules about asking taxpayers first before they raise taxes. 
You know, we're dealing with Prop HH, Proposition HH out here right now, and it's uh, I think it's a boondoggle and they're not being honest about it being a, 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 you know, an increase in our taxes. But we're learning a lot about how things roll out in ballot initiatives and how taxes are approved. A lot of people who've moved here find it very difficult to understand Tabor, but it's one of the most important pieces of legislation we've had in the history of Colorado. And I think it's really kept the budget in check. What's your take on Tabor real quick? Oh, yes. I mean, it's not only important to Colorado, it's important to the entire nation. Folks need to understand that while we have Proposition 13 in California that limited property taxes, Tabor in Colorado was part of the second wave of a nationwide tax revolt in the 1990s that saw tax limits put into place in Arizona, in Nevada, in Florida. It touched off a great tax revolt across the United States, just as big as the one that hit California in the 1970s. It is vitally important, not only for Colorado, but the entire country to uphold constitutional limits on government like this one. Well, and they've chipped away at it. They just keep, you know, chipping away a little bit here and there, here and there. And this time they're going for the whole tamale. They're basically trying to take out Tabor at the knees. And I think it's really difficult to go up against the ads that are so fluffy and sound nice, like, hey, you're going to get a Tabor refund and and you're going to lo- you get you're going to we're going to lower your property taxes a little bit. But, um, yeah, we're also going to take away your refunds forever and take away, most importantly, our right to have a check on government spending, which has gotten out of control yes. in Colorado. The state budget has doubled in the last decade. And uh, I, I just think people don't recognize how this little incremental you know, attack on Tabor, which is now a big attack, affects their actual pocketbooks. Yes, and it's so ironic because here in Washington, D.C., where we're headquartered, we see Colorado's congressional and their state-level officials pleading with the IRS, begging them not to publish a rule that would make Tabor refunds part of federal taxable income, saying it's absolutely vital we protect these refunds. Yet at the same time, a number of those officials are trying to gut Tabor entirely so that the refunds won't ever exist. Well, thank you for that, Pete. And obviously, my audience knows I'm a strong no on Proposition HH. I hope you all will read carefully before you take a vote on that. Um, Another important issue that's been going on behind the scenes, and it took me a while to research this one and understand what's happening, but I'd like you to explain it to our listeners. Um, Phil Weiser, our attorney general, has been part of a lawsuit against Google, an antitrust lawsuit. Tell us what this is all about. Well, we could go back a hundred years, Heidi, and talk about the origins of antitrust with Teddy Roosevelt and the trust busters and uh, Woodrow Wilson signing into law, the Federal Trade Commission Act. I mean, this has been a 100-year-old process of law designed to protect Americans from anti-consumer behavior on the part of companies, but also to try and meddle with competition in the marketplace. You know, the FTC Act talks about the government's right to regulate and police unfair or deceptive acts or practices. A deceptive act or practice, well, that's 
a less difficult thing to define. You know, say a grocery store promises fresh produce every day and it's all rotten. <laughs> um, you can prove that standard somehow. But what's unfair? Uh, unfair in the eye of another grocery store that doesn't like the fact that this chain has uh, more profits and more customers. Well, that's one definition. Unfair to another person might have an entirely different definition. That's what's going on here, unfortunately, with this Google case. The tech industry or sector has been under various forms of attack by the federal government and state attorneys general for decades now. It began with a very high-profile case in the 1990s against Microsoft. It's been launched also against Facebook, against Amazon, and of course, Google. That's the one that's front and center right now because the trial is going on as we speak. The real issues here have to do with whether Google was engaging in anti-competitive behavior and in deceptive kinds of behavior that would be illegal under antitrust laws. Well, the government's case isn't going uh, as planned, and uh, I think it's because they're having a very hard time proving these standards, and we can certainly get into that. The government originally made seven arguments against Google uh, in terms of it being unfair or anti-competitive in its practices. There were two cases, a federal case and one brought by about 40 state attorneys general led by Phil Weiser himself. Those cases have been merged, and the seven arguments made in those cases have been whittled down to just four. The judge in the case, Amit Mehta, said four of these seven arguments are so frivolous it's not even worth bringing them to trial. One of them is a central illustration of why these cases are so problematic. Basically, there were two uh, companies, uh, Yelp and TripAdvisor, claiming that Google's search results were not depicting their companies in the best light that they wanted. They were not prioritizing the search results properly. Well, the judge rightly said, what does that have to do with antitrust law? It yes. sounds more like sour grapes. <laughs> and so that's one problem uh, with the case that the governments, uh, the state and federal government, didn't seem to understand that you can't just say at the behest of Google's competitors, well, we think this is unfair. You actually have to prove something like deception or breaking uh, laws in terms of offering bribes or something like that. Uh, simply saying that some competitors are getting hurt by Google's practices is not the part of antitrust law that makes any sense. It, the, what we are supposed to have under antitrust law is a long-standing doctrine about 40 years old called the Consumer Welfare Standard. Governments generally did not bring antitrust cases for quite a number of years unless they could prove that consumers were actually being harmed. This suit is more like billionaires getting the government to sue other billionaires. 
uh, really a waste of taxpayer dollars and an insult to consumers. Ah, that's so unfortunate. There's so many examples of wasteful spending by our government. And I want to know more inside baseball. Like, why is Phil Weiser so interested in taking this on and leading this charge? Do you have any insights into that? Well, the political side of me might say that um, he's hoping to generate a lot of headlines. And of course, he has. It's great for an attorney general and both political parties, attorneys general do this, by the way. It's, it's great for them to be able to say, look at me. I'm going toe to toe with the biggest, baddest companies in the United States. Well, part of the problem is a lot of people don't like Google, but a lot of people do. And they use the free search engine a whole lot every day. And, uh, Simply saying that a big company is a bad company, that's where you start off making mistakes as a politician, uh, because there are plenty of large companies that uh, Phil Weiser probably likes, <laughs> uh, especially the ones who agree with his views. Uh, again, that doesn't mean they are breaking laws. And for um, the U.S. Department of Justice and states attorneys general and the Federal Trade Commission to start making judgments about who's breaking the law by the size of the company or the political views of the company. That's really dangerous. That's as dangerous as weaponizing the IRS. Boy, that's a good point. How can taxpayers yeah. push back on this? Like, what can can they even call and email his office? I don't know if that's effective, but what solid points do you want them to drive home if they do reach out to the attorney general's office or the governor's office to get them to knock it off? <laughs> well, I, I, I think it is important for citizens to contact not only their lawmakers, federal and state, but yes, the attorney general's office and say, you need to be focusing on priorities here. And we've actually done some polling on uh, what those priorities should be. Uh, we did a four-state poll about three years ago um, asking people to rank what they thought the priorities of their attorney general's office ought to be. And about 75% uh, in uh, most of the states of all the respondents, we're not just talking about Republicans here, but Democrats and independents too, about three quarters of them tended to say, focus on four things, prosecuting companies for fraud, a much different thing than anti-competitive behavior, work on human trafficking, mm -hmm. prosecute criminals, and Look at instances of consumer ripoffs from things like natural disasters or medical scams, what have you. So those are kind of core functions of an attorney general that most taxpaying voters would say, yeah, that's a good function of your office. Concentrate on that. We also threw in other things uh, to inquire uh, with the respondents as to what other priorities should be. Prosecuting companies under antitrust laws was within the margin of error of oh the poll. <laughs> Three, four percent. So nobody at the state level or the federal level who pays taxes 
seems to rank this as some massive important thing. It's the public officials themselves who seem to think that they're making media stars out of themselves. But again, if the polling data is showing that folks don't really think this is a good use of their money or a big part of your job, why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah. That's a good question for so much of what the government is doing right now. And, you know, Colorado is facing a terrible crime wave here. We're one of the top states in the nation for property uh, property crime and auto theft. Um, we've got human trafficking issues. We're the fifth worst city in the country, Denver is, for cartel activity. So we've got a lot of things to spend our tax dollars on that people yeah. care about, that people want resolved. So it's just puzzling to me that they would pick this way to invest their time and talent and treasure into when, um, you know, Coloradans are really hurting in other ways. Tell yeah. me a bit more about how people can get engaged or involved in the National Taxpayers Union. Well, yes, we'd certainly love for folks to visit our website at ntu.org to take a look at some of the materials we've put out, not only about why taxpayers should care about antitrust, but also our activities in the states on Prop HH, uh, also what we're doing in the courtrooms now to try and protect taxpayer rights against the IRS uh, when that agency goes awry. So that's NTU, our initials for National Taxpayers Union, ntu.org. And uh, certainly we'll keep following the Google trial. Uh, we are also members of something called the Competitiveness Coalition. That's uh, an organization that's gathered some two dozen groups like ours. Um, many of them are taxpayer groups. Some are free market groups. Some are state level organizations. We're all interested in trying to get the competition policy of the United States straight. And that means good, limited antitrust law that focuses on consumer harm rather than competitor complaints. Also, thinking about tax and other policies that make us internationally competitive. Uh, certainly, China is watching when these kinds of actions against Google or Amazon or Facebook take place in court, and they're wondering, well, how fortunate for our own state-owned companies uh, they are... <laughs> Uh, the U.S. government is hobbling its own firms. That gives us a leg up. That's a terrible message to send abroad. Wow, that's a great point. Pete, thank you. You know so much about some very complex issues. Would love to have you back on again sometime. And hopefully we'll be celebrating the defeat of Prop HH soon. Um, one of the things I talked about in my governor's race was getting as close to zero income tax as we possibly could because we're so taxed in so many ways. And I think that would really revive the economy in Colorado and drive new business here. Um, a lot of states are going that direction. Are you seeing success around the efforts towards zero income tax? Yes, they are. In fact, Iowa is moving toward that very type of policy. And they're doing a fantastic job by sort of ratcheting down the tax rate as well as government spending. So it's not as if they're making that traditional choice in fiscal policy. Well, you can either do without revenues or you can go into more debt. 
Uh, no, the, uh, Iowa is scaling back the size and scope of government to something that their citizens can afford. We're also seeing tax reforms in Mississippi and North Carolina. There are proposals in Wisconsin and uh, Minnesota to reduce income taxes, some perhaps even to eliminate them. We may very well see an effort like that in North Dakota centered on either income or property taxes. Yeah, I know there's been a big push in Texas about the constitutionality of property taxes. And yes. property taxes skyrocket here in Colorado. It's like, well, how much power does the government have to tax us on our property and tax us out of owning property in some cases? I'm curious to see how that plays out as well. Anything we can do to put more money and control back into the power of the taxpayers' pocketbook is I'm on board with. And I just don't think the government does a good job of spending our money at well at yeah. right now. Yeah. And I, I have to tell you, I, I think we need to get better as a political movement at using the so-called direct democracy initiative and referendum process. Uh, as we spoke about at the opening of this show, there was a whole wave of those kinds of limited government measures in the 70s and the 90s. We haven't seen much activity since then. We could make the 2020s another tax revolt decade if we use those tools the way they were intended to. Well, one of the other interviews I did recently was with Neil Shore, and he's leading pathtoreform.org here in Colorado to change the ballot initiative process to make it easier for citizens, because they're making it as difficult as they possibly can to allow us to do that, to pass things without the legislature, kind of the heavy hand of the legislature and the governor. So I think the easier we can make it, the more tax reductions relief we'll see going forward. Um, people are feel, really feeling the heat right now. So thank you for all you do. I really appreciate it, you and your organization. Again, it's ntu.org. I hope everyone will go check it out and keep up to date on this antitrust lawsuit with Phil Weiser. It's going on right now. You can set a Google alert to it, <laughs> funny enough, and find out more. But um, we want to know how our attorney general is spending his time and money. And I appreciate you filling us in on this important topic. My pleasure. Let's talk again soon. Thank you, Pete.